Welcome to episode 48 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I am your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott. And in this episode, I talk cyber and healthcare with Paul Perry at the Warren Averitt 2021 Healthcare Symposium. So a little different format for this week's podcast. On Friday of this week, I was honored to be part of the Warren Averitt 2021 Healthcare Symposium, and I spoke to my friend Paul Perry about cyber and healthcare, and we talked a host of subjects. He let me kind of go on for a little bit on general threat stuff. Some of the stuff will be stuff you've heard me say before, uh, but the just because it was a healthcare symposium doesn't mean that the stuff that we talked about is not translatable to other business industries, because certainly it is. All of the same issues that the healthcare is dealing with the defense industrial base deals with critical national infrastructure deals with everybody deals with it in certain modified ways. Uh, obviously, healthcare with all of the Internet of Things devices they have connected to their corporate network creates a, a much different issue than, let's say, if you're a subway shop owner. And the reason I use subway as an example is we had a case in Cleveland years ago where a bad guy had compromised a subway point of terminal sale machine to launch attacks on other things. Um, and so, you know, anything networked, anything connected to the Internet certainly is a risk and certainly something to be aware of. So we'll have that discussion here in, in a little bit. But I wanted to, to touch base with a couple news items from this week. Um, one is an older item, but it, it is affiliated with a news article from this week. But the first one I really want to talk about is the Apple flaw, the zero day that was identified and patched this week by Apple. The name of the particular zero day is called forced entry. It has to do with the Pegasus spyware, if you've paid any attention to that in the news, where the NSA and some other U U.S. intelligence entities had used um, some spyware to, to, honestly, to get into particular Apple devices. So let me read a quick article or part of a quick article from ArsTenica.com. This is Axe Sharma reporting. This is from September 14th. So this week, Apple has released several security updates this week to patch a forced entry vulnerability on iOS devices. The zero-click, zero-day vulnerability has been actively exploited by Pegasus, a spyware app developed by the Israeli company NSO Group, which has been known to target activist journalists and prominent people in the world. The particular vulnerability is called CVE 2021-30860, if you want to get that deep, um, and basically needs little, little or no interaction by an iPhone user or iPad user to be exploited, hence the name forced entry. So this was initially identified on a Saudi activist's phone, but turned out it was a flaw within, within the Apple iOS. And so what Apple's recommending is if you have an Apple device, be it um, uh, iPad, iPhone, Apple Watch, iMac, Mac Pro, all that kind of stuff, you should update that. Actually, as we're talking, having this conversation, my iMac, I mean, sorry, my Mac Mini is actually downloading an update to that. I just got back from a little vacation, so I'm, you know, catching up on some things. So that will, you know, obviously fix this, and all I think all of my devices will then be <laughs> be will be safe from this particular zero day. But if you are an Apple owner in any way, shape, or form, go into your settings. Look at uh, under general. There should be a software update thing that says you need it should have a one indicating there is an update there. If you have not already updated that, certainly do that as quickly as you can. Do you have to worry about someone spying on you? Generally, probably not, but the exploit is there. The vulnerability is there. So better safe than sorry. Go ahead and patch those holes and consider yourself a little safer off. The other two news stories are kind of intertwined, and they have to do with social media. And this is more directed at 
um, listeners who are parents, especially parents of teens and tweens and, and young adolescents or those just, you know, starting into the digital world with their first email or first iPhone, whatever. But it has to do with, well, this first article, um, this is tellerreport.com is the particular um, place I'm reading this from, but it's a reference to a Wall Street Journal article. And not that this is any, going to be any big surprise, but basically the, the title is Instagram is bad for teenagers' self-esteem, according to research. So Instagram has a negative impact on the self-esteem of teens, especially teen girls, according to an internal survey of Instagram itself that has been seen by the Wall Street Journal. So not only this, this is Instagram doing an internal survey and, and identifying this as a problem. Um, so you know, Instagram has been researching the influence of the social media platform on how teenagers in the United States and United Kingdom feel about themselves for three years. And time and again, it appears millions of users are negatively influenced by photos they see on Instagram of others because it creates negative body issues. It creates, hey, I wish I was that influencer. It creates, obviously, envy and jealousy, all those bad things. So why am I mentioning this? Simply because as parents, if you are a parent, you need to take a more active interest in how your kids are utilizing social media how they're utilizing their phones. I mean, if they're on their phone all the time taking pictures of themselves and posting it, you know, is it always a problem? No, of course it's not always a problem, but certainly something you should look into and be aware of because social media, while useful, and I'm not, I'm not trying to down, I'm not trying to give a negative impression of social media, though a lot of it sucks because I use LinkedIn for, for things that I do because I find it useful, although there's algorithms that kind of irritate me because I can't figure out how to use them exactly. But they all run under, you know, people create algorithms that is being are being used to feed you information that the algorithm thinks is important. Um, so there is a Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. I highly recommend if you've not seen it to take a look at it. It'll open your eyes to a couple of things and hopefully make you, you know, want to look a little deeper at to how you're allowing your your teens and your young adults not young adults per se, but your teens and, and adolescents, how they're interacting with those social media accounts. You're still the parent. You have ways to to protect your kids from that. And this brings us to the brings me to the other article from um, it's from a, a newspaper in Texas. But basically, it says cartels are using Facebook to connect with and traffic in minors. So it's a little older article, but it kind of came to light a little bit this week. And the reason I'm, I'm mentioning this in the Instagram one, because they're used by the same company. Facebook owns Instagram, so it's really the same company, same engineers, things like that. So from this particular article, Facebook continues to deny it supports human trafficking, though there's growing evidence that cartels are, and coyotes are using the platform to connect with migrant children crossing the border. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg was called out during a congressional hearing for censoring conservative speech, but still allowing human traffickers on his form. So I say all this, you know, is it a, a huge issue? I would say it probably is, because obviously Facebook cannot police everything on its network. It has hundreds of millions, if not billions of users doing a lot of different things and finding ways to place information that is important to them on Facebook without getting flagged for problems. Um, and obviously, Facebook has political leanings that make it focus more on political items of interest to them. So I say all this as a parent, just be aware that there is a trafficking nexus to issue on Facebook. So again, Facebook, Instagram, understand what your kids are doing online. Make sure you try to you know restrict it where you can. Talk to them about the risks 
of activity online. I mean, I think you'd be surprised that most most of your kids would be willing to listen to, to most of your parents, I would like to hope. So so do that. Um, just be aware these threats are out there because remember, if you understand the threats that are targeting you, you can assess your risk and proceed wisely. So what I'm saying by this is understand the threats are there and then assess the risk to you and your family and figure out how best to deal with it. So uh, as I mentioned, um, the next part of the podcast is going to be something I recorded the other day, uh, which is a healthcare symposium I was a member of. Uh, And so I'm going to play that and then uh, we will move on. I appreciate everybody uh, for listening. As always, please tell your friends and and anybody, family members who would find value in this podcast to to give it a listen. I appreciate those who continue to listen and download. Um, And uh, one other thing, I have a new podcast uh, called Get Cyber Smart. It is a shorter podcast, only 10 minutes or so per week, but it goes progressively by doing it. It's cyber education really is what it is, talking about different topics and and doing a, a quick little deep dive into what that topic is so you have a better understanding of cyber in general. And ideally, as I build out that podcast, it'll be very much a kind of one-stop shop if you're like, how do I do passwords? How do I do multi-factor authentication? There'll be a 10-minute discussion on what that looks like. So give it a listen. Get Cyber Smart. You can find it wherever you find this podcast. Uh, cyber on that one is uh, is, called, is spelled C-Y-B-U-R as well, because if you get a little cyber smart, you'll get a whole lot cyber safer. So now let's go to the Warren Averett 2021 Healthcare Symposium. Let's get started by introducing our presenters for the first session. Today we have Paul Perry. He is with our cybersecurity group out of our Birmingham office. And with him, we have Darren Mott, who is the podcast host of CyberGuy. So I'm gonna let them get started. Thank you both for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda, and thank you, Dana. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you all to, uh, uh, this year. It's always a pleasure to have these conversations. Uh, I'm going to introduce Darren in just a second. Before I do, I just want to say to everybody, uh, all the administrators for healthcare facilities that we have on this call, thank you for uh, your service and, and what you do for uh, that industry, especially over the last two years. Doctors and nurses get a lot of praise, and I don't think the CFOs and the CEOs and the controllers and the AP clerks get a, get enough praise for keeping those hospitals running as well. So uh, thank you very much for your service there. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have these conversations, and, and when it comes to cybersecurity, I, I do enjoy uh, that discussion. But today, I, I've got a really special treat, and it's uh, uh, an honor for me to have my friend Darren Mott uh, speak with you all today. Um, Darren has retired uh, 22 years service with the FBI. Darren, thank you for your service there. While he was uh, with the Bureau, uh, he did a lot of things around uh, counterintelligence and um, cybersecurity. Uh, he's worked in several different offices. Uh, when he retired, he was in the Birmingham Huntsville area, where he was the private sector coordinator, uh, special agent uh, as well around all of those areas here for North Alabama. Uh, and, it, and it's a pleasure to have Darren with us. The, the, the first time I ever met Darren, he and I were on a panel together. And uh, halfway through the panel, somebody asked a question. I saw Darren look at his phone and he got up and ran out of the room. And I thought to myself, you know, that's a new mantra in life. If you're ever in the room with a special agent or a law enforcement and they run out of the room, you probably should follow them because they don't want to be in that room and maybe you shouldn't be either. But uh, Darren, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Darren's going to talk about um, cybersecurity from the healthcare perspective uh, for the first half of this little session with us. Uh, and then it's going to be q and I've got some questions queued up that uh, I'm going to ask Darren when he's done. But if you have any, please put them in the Q&A box and I'll make sure that we get those um, 
asked and answered uh, by the end of the day. So, Darren, I will turn it over to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Warren Ever, for having me come speak uh, at this symposium. I appreciate any time anyone let me speak to any folks that I can help understand and better grasp the, the whole thing that we call cyber here because it is constantly changing, constantly evolving. The threats are evolving. The risk is evolving. And um, I've kind of made my post-bureau career out of trying to educate folks wherever I can as to what these threats are. Because my goal for this, whenever I speak to a group, is how can I make sure that you're not the entity that has to call the FBI to say, hey, we have a problem. We can't get into any of our data because we have ransomware or what have you. So hopefully in the next you know, 15, 20 minutes, I'll give a really brief overview of kind of cyber from a risk perspective, how it particularly is impactful to the healthcare field, especially now. There's, there's, you cannot probably go a day without seeing an article of some healthcare entity somewhere being hit with ransomware or some new kind of targeting um, of healthcare systems. Ironically, I had a call from an aunt of mine where I grew up in upstate New York in a very small area, and uh, the healthcare system up there had been hit with ransomware. It was so bad for them that they couldn't open the doors to particular areas of the hospital because the ransomware had locked up the electronics that impacted the door opening. So a friend of mine who owns the security company had to go send people there to cut the wire so they could go through the door. So I certainly recognize how bad it can be for, for folks within healthcare and within the hospital community and things like that. But, and Paul, I'll go into more detail on that later on, but I just wanna talk real briefly here for the next couple of minutes about just my general, my general approach to helping folks understand cyber risk. Because what it all comes down to at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you understand cyber a whole lot, if you know what cyber is, or you can even define cyber. If you ask 10 people to define what cyber is, they'd all probably have their own, own definition. But what it comes down to really is how do you mitigate risk? How are you dealing with the threats and vulnerabilities that make up risk that impact you? And one of the things I tend to talk to a lot of companies about is chances are your employee set, which is really your, can be either your, your largest liability or your largest area of defense, doesn't understand the cyber risk in general. And really when I'm talking about risk, I'm talking about threats times vulnerabilities. So if you can understand those two things, what the threats are that are targeting you and your information and the vulnerabilities they're using to get into your data, then you can reduce your risk by taking just a couple, you know, simple pieces of information and a couple different mitigation strategies. And just by having good password management and using multi-factor authentication, quite honestly, you can eliminate a lot of your a lot of your issues. So I want to talk a little deeper about that. First thing being understanding what the threats are. Because if you were to ask someone, tell me a cyber threat, then you'd say hackers. Okay. Well that's a very generalistic terminology that can refer to a whole lot of different things. When I was in the FBI, in addition to running cyber squads and counterintelligence squads, I did a lot of outreach to the private sector um, and public sector and companies and talking about this particular, what we call the cyber threat spectrum. And it's really six areas of threats that have different actors and have different impacts on you as corporations and you as maintainers of folks', folks um, personal identifiable information or personal health information. So. It, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these, but real briefly, it's hacktivism. These are the, the folks that want to use, that want to compromise computer networks to advance their political costs. So they're going to do denial of service. They're going to hack your web page. They're kind of easy to, to mitigate that issue. You can kind of block them out. You can restore your web page and move on. The next three are probably the three biggest ones that most companies need to at least have a basic understanding of and, and, and educate 
their employees as to what these threats are, because if you can understand what the threats are, you can then assess your risk and then you can proceed wisely online. So from a, so the first one we all know is cyber criminals. These are going to be your Russian hackers, your Nigerian email senders, your all of those things that are looking to steal information for financial gain, whatever that looks for. Could it be compromising a network to get a ransom? Certainly. Could it be stealing personal information to do identity theft? Absolutely. These are all cyber criminals located all over the world in a lot of different countries for, with a lot of different reasons, a lot of different protections, and they want to steal information to monetize it. And really what this all comes down to is the theft of information or the compromise of information. Within the cyber world, we talk about the CIA triad, confidentiality, integrity, and availability of information. So all of these groups tend to impact one area of that because if you impact one of those three things, then you cause a problem for the holder of that information. So cyber criminals want to monetize the information. Cyber insiders, these are going to be folks that have, you know, a variety of reasons for what they do. It could be they are looking to steal your information to go to a competitor. They're looking to compromise that data because they're disgruntled, because they're angry with the company. It could be they're looking to take that information and give it to a nation state. And this is really your biggest threat overall because insiders have access to your data already. You've already given them access because they're trusted, they're their IT folks, or they are your financial administrators. It depends. Everybody who has access to your computer network is a potential insider. And every company would benefit from an insider threat program, yet very few actually have one. Within the, the defense industrial base, they are all mandated to have them, but I'll tell you right now, even those programs are pretty weak from what I've seen because they look at what are the minimum things I need to do to check this box to say I have a insider threat program and then I'm good from a compliance perspective. So I'm not sure what the compliance requirements are in the healthcare world. I'm going to say it's probably less than it is in the DIB world from an insider threat perspective. But it's something you should certainly look at because insiders can do more damage than pretty much anybody else. Next threat is the cyber espionage threat. These are your nation state actors. These are your Chinese, Russians, North Koreans that look to get into corporations to steal information to benefit their countries or steal geopolitical information. You know, do you have to worry about the Russian, the state of Russia hacking your hospital? In general, probably the risk there is pretty low. Same thing with China. They're not really looking to steal um, health health information. I'll, let me rephrase that. China is. China does things a little differently than everybody else because they obviously want to be the, the hegemonic world power. So they take their data and they, they can use it for a host of different things. So they, if you look at historical data breaches, you take a look at the Marriott data breach, the Equifax data breach, the OPM data breach, all of those things, those three specifically were done by Chinese actors. These are Chinese military actors that are funded by the country of China and they steal that information and they kind of can take it all together and find folks to, 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 to compromise down the line. Um, you know, so just understand that threat's out there. And then the last two, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on cyber terrorism, cyber warfare. Chances are you're not going to have a big impact on that, although if cyber terrorism can figure out how to use the internet a little better than they do um, beyond just propaganda and recruitment, then they can certainly cause a lot of issues um, across critical national infrastructure, which of course healthcare is one. So that's certainly a concern down the road um, and something to at least to be in the back of your mind. Then cyber warfare, if we go to a, a shooting war with another country, there will be cyber, cyber aspects to that. So those are kind of the six six areas and you can do more research on that and if you want more information you know feel free to contact me I can I can share with you some slides I have about this but from a healthcare perspective what are the the key cyber issues in healthcare I did a presentation several months ago at another conference it was a healthcare conference and and this was a this five five bullets that are kind of interesting that I that I found um, that 
you know, can, can create, can, can look at issues within the healthcare community. The first one is healthcare only spends about 5% of their budget on cybersecurity. So I'm sure you say, well, we have an IT department and they, you know, are always asking for money to do things, but your IT department is not your cybersecurity department. They are the folks that make sure your network runs. In, a, in, in healthcare, obviously, you have a lot of different devices that have network connections that do a lot of different things, have a lot of different operating systems, need a lot of different patching, and your IT folks are doing all they can do to make sure those things, they're on top of those things. They're not really concerned with cybersecurity from, a, from that perspective. So one thing I would, I would ask you to think about when you think about cybersecurity and you think about your IT budget, those two things are not the same. So, you know, in order to reduce the risk, you need to actually focus on cybersecurity specifically. Now, if you have a CISO, chances are he's focused on that, and that's great. Um, but how big is his team, and how big is your, your hospital network? Is it you know, how many endpoints are there? If there are, there are 1,000 endpoints, 2,000 endpoints, 5,000 endpoints. It's very hard to keep track of all those endpoints without a team there that's looking at them all the time. Most incidents within the healthcare cyber risk area are attributed to human error insider threats. So basically that means someone gets an email, clicks a link, um, opens an attachment that launches malware on the network that causes all of these issues. Hackers generally today do not do brute force attacks against networks. Some certainly do. You certainly have that still occurring. But for the most part, 90% of the cases the FBI ever investigated when I was there, and it's still the same today from folks I still have contact with, it's always some kind of human interaction that caused the malware to occur. Usually ransomware, obviously, we're talking in healthcare. So these are you can consider these insider threats. These are um, insiders that don't have a, they're not doing it on purpose, but they're still insiders in that perspective because they're already in your network, they're clicking on these links and causing those problems. Ransomware has cost the healthcare industry over $157 million since 2016. Um, so that's ransomware, then so you think that's bad. Everybody thinks ransomware, ooh, that's bad, $157 million. Well, how often does your organization talk about business email compromise? Because the losses from that is 10 times higher than it is for ransomware. So. Ransomware gets all the news. You're always going to see news articles about ransomware. And I have a, a presentation I have has a slide with, with six or seven different headlines from, from hospital uh, and, and healthcare areas that got hit with some kind of ransomware or some kind of attack. Yet you very rarely hear about business email compromise. Could be it's not reported, it's not reported in time, but it's really not as sexy a crime because basically someone has compromised somebody's email somewhere and has tricked someone within your organization to wire money somewhere. Now, it could be it didn't happen within your organization because obviously with the business you're in, you get invoices and you have vendors from all over the place that are sending you requests for payment. So hopefully you have a some kind of system in place that when you get an invoice, you have a way to check to make sure it's legitimate. Yet business email compromise year in and year out is the number one cyber crime from a financial loss perspective across all industries, simply because it works. Um, there was one company that called me one time, they were from California and they said, hey, we need to talk to somebody um, here in Los Angeles and we were given your name. I was in Huntsville, so they must have known somebody who knew me who said, hey, call this guy. So I said, okay, what happened? They said, well, we got a couple invoices and we wire transferred money out and then we realized it was fictitious. And I said, how many, how many wire transfers did you send? And they said, three. And I said, how much money did you lose? $2.5 million. So those three invoices cost them $2.5 million. They were a week out from this already occurring. So one thing I'll tell you with business email compromise, just to keep in the back of your mind, in the event you are a victim of this, if you can contact the FBI and the Internet Crime Complaint Center 
within 24 hours, you have a very good chance of getting your money back. They have what's called the business email compromise kill chain, and they're able to actually identify the wire transfers a lot of times and retrieve your money, but you have to do it fairly quickly. So just, I, I say that, just keep it in the back of your mind. It's going to go to a, a point that, that Paul and I will talk about later regarding, you know, who do you contact at the FBI? And ideally, you should already have contacts at the FBI right now. If you don't, I can, uh, we'll talk about how to do that in a little bit. But uh, the other point here, vulnerabilities in third-party software. So healthcare is unique in this perspective in that I'm going to assume that all of your third-party devices are not all from the same third-party vendor. So your, your IV machines that run on network connections, your X-ray machines, your MRI machines, they all have different software, different software manufacturers, different ways that those, that software is patched. Anything with software with underlying code has vulnerabilities that could compromise those devices. So again, you have an IT department that ideally is trying to stay on top of patching all of these things, but the question is, are they or are they not? And what is the, what is the risk from those devices? One of, the, one of the stories that we talk about a lot, or I talk about a lot, is um, a case out of Las Vegas where a casino was compromised when the thermometer in a fish tank was the compromising area. So the bad guys got into the thermometer because it was a uh, Internet of Things device that sent information back to the casino to say, hey, the water pH is this or what have you. And they were able to pivot from that thermometer into the, the um, casino's network and steal information about all of the big spenders that this casino had. So they got all the PII from, from all that information. So, And then the last thing I think about is how is Colonial Pipeline associated to healthcare? So Colonial Pipeline obviously was a big ransomware attack, but it hit the financial area of Colonial Pipeline, did not hit the distribution point. They shut down the distribution point simply as a safety mechanism. And so, so with that, you know, think about yourself. Let, let's say your financial area got hit with ransomware. So the only thing that's impacted in your hospital or your healthcare um, office is the financial piece. Do you have to turn everything off because of that? Maybe you do, but it would be probably useful to understand how your network is configured together so that if one area gets compromised, maybe you can isolate it and keep everything else going. So again, it's one of those things just to think about. Um, it's hard to say if it's impactful the same or what have you, but obviously think about those things. Uh, and so a couple things, couple, here's just a couple basic risk reduction framework pieces. Um, this is a very generalized list. There's a lot more things you can do, but the first thing is to understand your top attack vector is email. Someone always clicks a link. I've said this for five years, five, uh, I've said it for 10 years. 10 years later, people are still clicking links. Someone's always gonna click a link wherever. So just understand that's gonna be the top way they get in. Password reuse in the dark web is a huge issue. Think about your passwords. How complicated are they? Are they eight characters? If they're eight characters, my MacBook Pro I am staring into right now could crack that password in about 10 minutes with the limited amount of technology I have on it. So you want to have at least passwords that are 13 characters or more with a multitude of characters and special characters and things like that. Because what happens is if you take a look at the historical data breaches, one of the big files that they steal is the password files. And a lot of times the password files are not encrypted correctly, are not tremendously protected. And so they have lists and lists and lists, millions of different passwords that are sold on the dark web that the bad guys can then look for, let's say your Office 365 login. I'm sure it's not, I'm sure I could, if I put in, if I found an email for someone at your organization and you guys were using Office 365, I could find your Office 365 login. It's outlook.com. I put in your email address. It's going to take me to your, your organization's page. Does it every time. So then 
I can just start plugging in passwords and hope that I might find one that works. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But this is the big way that the bad guys are using password reuse because they have these files and they just brute force attack it. Office 365 came out a couple months ago that they had a vulnerability that allowed bad guys to do this kind of stuff. The big thing, so, so longer, longer passwords are better. Use password managers. That's a whole presentation in itself. And multi-factor authentication. That's the, really the biggest thing. If you can at least turn on multi-factor authentication so that you get a text message or you use an authenticator app, you can greatly reduce the risk overall because the bad guy just doesn't have that particular code. And then the other key thing, identify your crown jewels. What is it that's most important in your organization? What do you need to protect? You know, if the IV machines go down, is that a crown jewel? If the x-ray machines go down, is that a crown jewel? If your PHI server goes down, is that a crown jewel? I would say so. Identify those and figure out how to protect them and firewall around that as best you can. And then the other key thing, share your knowledge with corporate power partners, your family, and anyone else. Because I, Paul, <laughs> Paul's sick of me hearing this and he sees me say it on LinkedIn all the time, but knowledge is protection. If you understand what's going on, you can protect yourself, your family members, because this really goes beyond just your organization. I know you're here for a healthcare symposium, it's great, but understand that these problems will, will transmit from, from your organization to your own personal information to your family's information. Darren, that's uh, that's great information. And, you know, I want to, I want to take a moment and I want to, I want to plug your podcast because you're talking about knowledge is protection. And one of the things that I've been having a lot of discussions with people about is self-education. Yes, you need to come to the symposiums. You need to listen to the cybersecurity experts when they talk about things. That's education. Self-education is getting out there and reading the articles or listening to podcasts. I know you produce the, the Cyber Guy podcast. I've, it's been a pleasure to be on there a couple of times. And it's, it, is, it is just really good information that people need to hear, and they need to hear it over and over again. And I think that self-education... Uh, if people can get better at the self-education and don't gloss over the articles. I mean, every time you see a headline, I'm sure most people outside of maybe you and I and Scott and a couple other folks we know, they just gloss over it because it's just another headline. Well, you need to you need to read those headlines. You need to read those articles. You need to see what the compromise was. And then you need to think about that from your own personal perspective and maybe your company's perspective. Is this, is this something that is our risk that we need to focus on? Uh, and so I think that self-education is important not just reading the articles, listening to the podcasts that are out there, uh, and just continually do that. You agree with that? Yeah, and can I, I'll add one other thing. I actually have two podcasts now. So I have the Cyber Guy podcast, okay. which is the one I started a year ago, which is about anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, depending on if, if I have an interview or not. And it's not geared towards technical folks. If you are in the cyber world, this is not the podcast for you. It'll do you no good. You'll be listening to me say, yeah, no kidding, I know that stuff. This is for everybody else who doesn't deal in the cyber world all the time and, and just wants a little bit of information. So I've had that for a year. I'm on 48 episodes or something. The other one I just started is called the Get Cyber Smart Podcast. And that is, so I have a master's degree in education, a master's degree in cybersecurity. So I'm trying to blend those two things and come up with a way to just kind of give people basic understanding of just the basic cyber piece. What is cyber? So this is a, like a 10 minute podcast. I do it once a week and it's, it's progressive. So like my first episode is what is defining cyber. Second one is defining cyber risk. The, the one I did yesterday is the talking about the threats I just talked about. So actually you've already heard, basically you've heard the first three already sitting here, but um, it's, it's designed to go forward. And, and if you have someone say, I don't understand how I should do passwords. Well, eventually there'll be a 10 minute discussion on here's how you can do passwords. Here's how to create a good password. Here's a password manager you can use. Here's how easy it is. It doesn't have to be complicated. So I, I'll plug both of those, the Cyber Guy podcast and the Get Cyber Smart. And in both cases, cyber is spelled C-Y-B-U-R. It's a branding thing. It's from your 
from FBI. your days yep. of the of the bureau, right? <laughs> yep, exactly. So actually, we are, and so for for this symposium, yes, we're 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 doing this discussion, and the reason it's more of a discussion between Darren and I, and, and listening to that is that Darren's actually recording it on his side, and I think you're going to re- try to release this on the Cyber Guy podcast. Correct. So if there's something that we talked about that you missed, or if there's somebody you said, hey, you should have really seen this presentation, or heard this conversation, we're gonna we're gonna take this recording and and we're going to let Darren put it on his uh, cyber guy. So we're glad to do that as well. You know, you were talking a little bit about segmentation and I think that's interesting um, because a lot of folks look at an IT system and if they don't under truly understand it, they just say it's all one big system, but you've got the operating IT piece, you've got the financial IT piece, you've got the general IT piece and making sure that's all segmented. I do remember uh, walking uh, into one hospital one time, and I was talking to their IT folks, and um, I, I said, let's talk about your, your patient information. I, I assume that's segmented, that's somewhere that isn't connected to anything else. And there were seven people in the room, and uh, every, six of them said yes, that that's completely segmented. The seventh guy didn't say anything, and I said, are you sure it's segmented? It looks like you want to say something. He goes, well, uh, the guest wireless went down today, and we had to move it, and I moved it to that same server. Mm, yeah. And it was just kind of like, you know, that was that was probably one of the only meetings where we stopped the meeting and they went and fixed it. And then we came back and continued the conversation, right? Because you've, you've got to understand, you said crown jewels, you've got to understand that PHI is there and you've got to protect it. And while I agree, that's a big risk for hospitals. I mean, there's some stat out there that, that says most of everybody's PHI or or medical records have already been hacked. Is that right? Yes. I would say if you take a look at the historical data breaches going all the way back to 2003, when ALL was first breached, um, it, your information's out there, your PII, your PHI, it's probably been compromised in some way, shape, or form. I mean, how many, you know, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, South Anthem, Anthem, pick, a, pick, a, pick an insurance provider. They've all had their, their stuff compromised. So millions and millions, if not billions, of, of medical records compromised. So you kind of have to understand that chances are your data's out there, um, you know, can... Can criminal guys use that for much? Not so much, but the, the espionage guys kind of can in the sense that if you take a look at what do cyber, what do nation state actors want? They want spies within the United States. So they'll take a look at, they have the OPM stuff, so they know everybody who works for the government. If they have the P, right PHI, they now know what that person's medical conditions are. If they have their Equifax data, they know they're like, the, maybe they owe a certain hospital $100,000. They can use that information to go compromise that person and get information. So, um, but beyond that, obviously, your, your key thing is trying to come up with a way to monitor your own personal data. So beyond it, understand first, the data's probably been lost. Has it been lost for everybody? No. I'm sure there's some people that have not had their personal health information lost. But most of us at this point, if you're 30 or over, chances are someone has some piece of it somewhere. So you kind of just have to monitor your own information, make sure that you know, your bank accounts are secure and you got to kind of actually extrapolate that out from just your healthcare concerns to your financial concerns. You know, how much that information is combined from a social security number perspective. I do kind of laugh as far as not, I don't laugh, but people who say, Oh, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to give you my social security number. Why are you protecting it? I can go find it if I really need it. It's out there. (laughs) That's, that's, that's an interesting, I mean, that, that really is a truly interesting point and it does come down to monitoring and it's your piece of what you have to do to kind of uh, keep yourself, um, secure as 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 you go about your your day and your life, and so um, that's that's really interesting. Thanks for those thoughts. You mentioned something that I do want to go back to uh, related to knowing your your federal law enforcement. I mean, there have been times. I mean, I remember one Halloween, I got on the phone with you, and I said, "Hey, I got a client on the phone. This happened. What do we do? We move on." 
Um, but well, you and I already knew each other, so I was able to make that call and we were able to make that connection. Can you kind of speak for just a minute, expand on knowing who it is and then the relationship that comes afterwards? Because I, I have learned, and it took a while for me to learn this, but it's a, it sometimes is a one-way street. I will give you some information, and when I need to know something, you will let me know. Right, right, right absolutely. So the first thing I would say, depending on where you are, so I, we talked a little bit about this in the pre-discussion on this. So if you're, in, if you're in Alabama, there are two FBI offices, Birmingham and Mobile. If you're Montgomery and South, you're part of the Mobile Division. If you're uh, Montgomery and North, or North of Montgomery, you're in the Birmingham Division. Every three years, those two offices get together, play flag football, and the winner gets Tuscaloosa. That's how they split that up. But um, so <laughs> if, if you're in Georgia, Atlanta is your main field office. And if you're in Florida, it's Jacksonville, Miami, or um, Tampa, depending on where you're located. Actually, I think in Tampa, Orlando is actually a bigger office than Tampa, but those two things are connected to Tampa. So my, my recommendation is no get to know someone in those offices already. You should already have that, that personal connection. There's, there is an office of private sector person in each of those offices. What that means is you can call them and say, hey, can you come talk to our employees about cyber? They'll send someone out to talk about cyber risk. It doesn't cost you, it's all free. They will do it all for free. And then you get to know who those, who those FBI folks are. So when you have the problem, you're not running around saying, who do I contact? Who, I don't know who, to, who my point of contact is. Uh, at least then you have the point of contact that you can then quickly go to and say, hey, what do I do with this? Like, let's take business email compromise. You have a 24 hour window there to get your money, potentially get your money back. If you don't know who to contact, you're gonna lose that 24 hours trying to figure out who that is. So know that person beforehand. It, it may be the OPS coordinator, it may be the cyber supervisor. It all depends, there's different, you know, different I'll be honest, in each office, different supervisors in different areas have different desires, whether they wanna interact with the public. I loved it. I wanted to have as many, I had hundreds and hundreds of contacts in Huntsville alone, just from the people I talked to, because I would go out and talk to anybody who wanted who wanted to talk. The person who took over from me never wanted to go out. So it's all different, but the office of private sector person will kind of coordinate that and you'll at least have that, that, that particular name. I'll give you one, one um, anecdotal piece of information where this went bad for a company. So I had a call from a CIO who said, hey, I know a friend of yours and it was a, it was a guy who was, I had a, a group of five companies that were our prime partners. And so the CIO from that company was this CIO's fiance. So she called me and said, hey, you know, I got a call from an FBI agent. He said he was in the Birmingham division and he said we had ransomware on our system, um, but nothing's going. So I don't know what he's talking about. I just wanted to confirm he was who he was. I said, yeah, he is a super, he is a agent on our squad. He must've gotten information that is being passed in clear. Surely we had gotten information from another office saying this group was looking at this company in Birmingham and they'd already started to load files onto that network. Um, and so she called me, I told her, Told she, she theoretically should have known who I was because her fiance said, call Darren, he'll help you. Um, she didn't believe me, so she, she didn't do anything for a day. The supervisor of the cyber squad sent her an email with mitigation instructions saying, here's what the files look like. Here's how you remove them from your system and you'll be good to go. She didn't believe him. So she sent an email from her internal system to the special agent in charge of the Birmingham division to verify that the three of us were all actually FBI agents. Again, the inside of the system where the bad guys are already sitting. She showed up the next morning and ransomware was impacted on her system. So that was an wow. example of where if she'd have known someone in the bureau already, she would not have had this issue. You do got to give her credit for uh, being, you know, questioning the emails sure. that come in. Absolutely. I mean, you, mm -hmm. Sure, there's that. Yep. But definitely it's that it's that whole connection. Mm -hmm. uh, and then speak to 
you're gonna you're gonna contact the FBI. You're gonna give them information, and it's a need to know at that point. They're not going. It's right. not going to be a constant conversation back and forth. Is right. That that, yeah. So when investigate, let's say there's an invest, let's say get hit with ransomware. They come out and they do an invest. They start start an investigation. Chances are pretty good from a ransomware perspective that they know the group based on signatures on the ransomware. Business email compromise is a little different because they don't know who who compromised the email or who did it. So as the investigations go, we pretty much take information in. We will not give you back information on stuff. Like it's, it's not a two-way street. And that's just the way that, right. that criminal investigations are run is there has to be a security of information on our side. We can't say, well, we think it's this person here. And then you go and call them and say, hey, here's $10 million for my data back. We don't really don't want that to happen if, if, if we can prevent it. Or if it's a nation state, that creates a whole host of other issues. So yeah, it's not, and it's, it's not really adversarial in any sense. It's, it's just protecting the information to ideal, ideally have someone be prosecuted. Yeah, and, and that's that's what I think people need to understand is when they get into it, it's 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 really helpful because you may have already heard four or five of other other things just like this and and people think it's them themselves, but it's really a big it's really a big issue, right. a big investigation. They're just a part of the piece, right? And so now they can find and put pieces together. But I think that's when when people call me and say, Yeah, well I've have told the FBI but I haven't heard anything back, I'm like, That's a good thing, right? They're right. they're doing what they should be doing. You mentioned the uh, internet complaint site, uh, ic3.gov. If you do get, if you do have ran, uh, ransomware, if you have anything happen, um, business email compromise, go into that website. Also lets the bureau know kind of what's happening. Right, but understand, even that's that that one, you'll you'll probably unlikely to hear anything back from that one. I'll be honest with you, because what that does right. is a bunch of analysts that, that collate information. So let's say a lot of them are eBay scams. So you get hit five thousand dollars, and you you go and you file your complaint on ic3.gov. That is not going to generate a case in most cases. But let's say that 100 people who lost $5,000 to the same scammer send in their information, then the loss amount there is um, whatever, $500,000, million, whatever it is. So that's going to generate a case somewhere. Some, some office somewhere is going yeah. to, and they're going to take that information and they can isolate who it comes from. Then they'll send a lead to that office and then you may be contacted then for more information. But just yeah, understand that it, it's, it's somewhat of a black hole, but it's designed kind of that way. So uh, security awareness training, I mean, that's the, the stuff we've been talking about this whole time. Um, you know, the questions I always get, how much is too much? Um, how often should it happen? How, in what avenues? I'm sure there's, you know, there's always a multitude of avenues. When, when you try to educate companies, and, and, and in this case, um, healthcare facilities and hospitals, you know, how often should they, do you suggest they should be doing some sort of security awareness training? Well, this is a, as, as you well know, and you're, you're feeding me this question because you know my answer. Yes, um, the, yes. uh, I, I think there needs to be a paradigm shift in how cybersecurity education awareness training is provided. I think if you do it once a year and say, okay, watch this video, read this PowerPoint, and we're good for the year, you're, you've cybersecurity trained, that does nothing for you. And the research shows that. There, there was an article I read couple months ago and 47 percent of companies who had been hit with ransomware more than once had cybersecurity awareness training as part of their curriculum so i think you have to change it and make it more repetitive in the sense not repetitive but more regular and what i mean by that is maybe you do um you know a 10 minute some kind of 10 minute training on cybersecurity once a month just to talk about here is 
here's some information we're going to talk about this month. Here's information we're going to talk about this month. You could actually, you could make a 12-month curriculum that talks about certain things that keeps them engaged. Um, it's what I call getting cyber smart. That's my, my thing. And I've actually created a, a beta program for this to try to test it out to see if it's worthwhile, if it's something that, that folks would want. So I will say for the folks in this particular, on this briefing, if you want access to this Get Cyber Smart program, the way I'm, I'm doling it out is it's once a month. I do a couple videos on certain topics and I put in, I put information, intelligence information in there from different things like this month. Um, I had a, a PDF from a friend of mine who wrote a book, and it's about how to protect the elderly and how to protect your kids. And then I did a thing on the Apple vulnerability that came out this week that you need to update all your Apple products. And the way this is designed is not just how to protect your corporate business, because and you need to do that, certainly. But if, if you can make your employees part of the, un, the cyber awareness team, I guess, where to put it, so that they understand that if they understand these basic concepts, they protect your business, they protect your network, they protect their home network, they protect their kids, and they can protect their elderly parents who are often victims of scams. So it's kind of multifaceted in the way that it's presented. Um, so that is, that's the way I would do it. And, and honestly, um, this is just kind of a, it's a, it's just something I'm tiered on because I think being an educator, the more you understand, if you can get, and I'm going to give you my tagline, if you can get a little cyber smarter, you get a whole lot cyber safer because you are constantly thinking about all of these cyber issues. Um, and then, you know, if you're at least thinking about it, you're going to get that email that comes in and says, ooh, what is this? Should I open this? Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should, you know, call the person who sent me this link and make sure they actually sent me the PDF that I'm supposed to open and read. I think I look forward to the day when we don't have to have the cyber conversations because the culture has changed, and it's that mm -hmm. is, that is that paradigm shift, and um, that's what that's what we seek to do every day is is to really change um, the culture, and and just by having these conversations, um, and you know you're you're a thought leader in this. I know Scott Autumnbaum's a thought leader in this. He's written a couple books. Uh, Y'all are the thought leaders I go to to learn um, what what other people's opinions are, and I think that that culture shift will happen i don't know when it will happen but it should happen at some point um and and it's going to take it's going to take something big it's going to take uh you know the, the next the next headline uh for people to, to kind of wake up to it so with that I'll, I'll ask that question you know what is what is the next headline in cybersecurity for healthcare uh in general you know what and and i know you and i talked about this a little bit before before we started this discussion but um while we can sometimes think like the criminal, I still don't know exactly what they're thinking in the future. But to, to your, to, in your opinion, what is that next headline that people need to be aware of? So I think the first thing is, I'm not sure if I can predict the exact headline, but I can predict how it'll get to that headline. So you have technology, if you look at our technology, it is moving like this, very quickly moving forward. You know, where you can, I just saw a thing yesterday, you can buy a hard drive for your computer that's 18 terabytes, a single drive for 18 terabytes. So you can put tons of data on that. If I'm a bad guy, that is fantastic. Because if I'm downloading all sorts of information from the dark web and I need storage, 18 terabytes for 200 bucks or whatever it costs, that is, wow, that's, that's great. So just that point, technology is moving this way. The bad guys are right behind that technology figuring out how do I exploit it? What is the exploit I need to do to compromise that technology, be it artificial intelligence? I think we have not seen a big run into artificial intelligence, but that's coming. If it's, if it's not around the corner, it's around the next corner or after that corner because artificial intelligence is going to change a lot of the ways that even bad guys, bad guys are going to be the first one to figure out how to use that artificial intelligence. Think about those phone, mm -hmm. those phone calls you get that say, hi, I'm calling about your car, car, um, your car warranty. 
click here, you know, that's a, it's a scam somewhere down the line. Or, you know, hey, we're right. calling because you're someone used your social security number and you click. I click through just to, I want to, I get to the guy, I want to, I want to hear what he has to say. I want to hear what the scam is. Um, so, <laughs> but you can always tell they're calling from an overseas, you know, sweatshop somewhere. So you can pretty tell, much tell that he's not from the Internal Revenue Service Department of Investigation, whatever they call themselves. Artificial intelligence is going to make that a lot easier to do because they're going to sound legitimate. They may, it may go to a video chat where they look legitimate. I mean, you can make, you can use artificial intelligence to do a whole lot of things. So the bad guys are right there figuring out how to compromise that, find those vulnerabilities. Law enforcement is way back here dealing with the vulnerabilities from before, trying to deal with what that looks like as our IT folks and the cybersecurity folks and stuff like that. And then politicians are way off to the side, worried about cow flatulence and all that stuff. So they're not concerned with cybersecurity so much. So I think the problem is going to be technology when when whatever the next technology driverless cars, obviously driverless cars are going to be a huge issue. And in, in the sense, not that it's going to impact healthcare per se, but it's going to impact a lot of different things that if you can, you know, have self-driving cars, how much can you do automatically within the healthcare system that you necessarily, you know, wouldn't need a technician for? I don't know what that looks like, but that's going to, that's going to farm out of driverless cars, artificial intelligence, all that stuff. So how are you protecting that data? I mean, there was an article that came today from MedCity News, medcitynews.com, and it says, Hive is a new and potentially devastating type of ransomware. Here's what you need to know. This type of ransomware, which was linked to a cyber attack against a Ohio-based health system in August, employs a multi-pronged approach focusing not only on encrypting sensitive data, but terminating backup processes to make it harder for organizations to recover. Mm-hmm. So there's a modification of ransomware right there. We already knew they were getting into the backup so that when you reinstall with your backup, the ransomware is there. Now they're just getting rid of backup altogether. So then what are you going to do? So That's crazy. That's that's crazy. And and I don't disagree with AI, but I will say that um, I did read an article, and we are still years away from AI really somewhat taking over a lot of things. Uh, it, it was an article from China that um, a, a celebrity in China had gotten a, a couple notifications that they had fines for jaywalking. And they were like, I don't walk the streets of, of my city. I don't, how do I, how do I have these? And they went back and they started looking at the videos and the AI cameras that were on the streets kept picking up her picture on the side of a bus <laughs> and that, and, and, and it was recording a jaywalking, but it wasn't truly her. It was just her picture. So while I agree, AI is going to be that thing around the next two corners, uh, it's, there's still some ways away because it's still bad. AI is still not working the way it really should Sure, to some degree there. So uh, as we, as we kind of wrap up this conversation and we appreciate um, your time with us today, um, uh, you talked a little bit about passwords, you know, you want to give a quick couple minutes on what's the, you, you, you talked a little bit about the length of the passwords and multi-factor authentication, but, but what's the next, what's the next stage of passwords? Are we going to get to not having passwords and it's now our face or our retina or our fingerprint? I mean, kind of what do you think that technology is going? Microsoft's already done that. Microsoft moved this week to eliminate passwords across their platforms. So you just have to download the Microsoft Authenticator application and then basically just get the code from it. So they've already moved from, from, they're trying to move to no passwords whatsoever. But I think passwords are still going to be with us for a while because the technology for retinal scans, fingerprints, all that kind of stuff. Sure, on your phone is doing facial recognition, is doing all that stuff. But it still needs the password in the background for that facial recognition to work on your phone. I mean, in other words, you can't just say, here's my face, yay for me unlock me. You still have to have right. the pa- it saves the password, then it uses your face to unlock the password so you don't have to remember it. So at the end of the day, for, for a while, we're still going to need passwords. So 
my recommendation is always 13 characters or more. And it doesn't have to be, I mean, it can be multi letters, numbers, all that kind of stuff. I say, think of a phrase that's easy to remember. I, and in, in my presentations for 10 years, the first question was, how do I manage all my passwords? And, and, you know, obviously we all have hundreds of passwords. Still get that today. Right. So because ideally one of the key things we say is don't use the same password everywhere and have different passwords for your, cre your critical systems, your email, financial, social media. You should at least have different passwords for those things. Well, there's plenty of password managers you can purchase on your phone or you can, some of them are free. Dashlane is, I don't think Dashlane's free anymore, but Dashlane, I use Keeper Security. Cost me 30 bucks a year, but at this point I've got so many passwords, I just keep up, re upping it because it'd be too much of a pain in the butt to go to something else. Um, and it goes across platforms. So I have it on my, my Macs, I have it on my phone, I have it on my iPad. So if I need a password, it's right there. And when I change the password on one, it changes across all of them. It's encrypted. It uses multi-factor authentication to get into it. So I always tell people, you know, so that way, and it, it'll create you a 20 character password. All my passwords are 20 characters. I don't create it. I just click a button and it creates a 20 character password. I copy it and paste it into the password thing. And then I get multi-factor authentication and I, I solve it that way. So there's a, really, there's no excuse not to have good password hygiene because it, it is easy now to kind of to do that. Um, I mean, you can still write down your passwords and put them on a piece of paper. Don't tape them to your monitor, but fold them up, stick them <laughs> in a book on your bookshelf when you know where it is, because unless you're robbed by Mensa, no one's stealing your books. So they're not going to get your passwords. And people say, well, what if you know, you have your passwords on your phone? What if they take your phone and they put the, the phone in front of your face to get your passwords? My thought there is if I'm at that point where someone's got my phone and got me tied up, I got bigger issues than whether or not they know my Facebook <laughs> password. That's a good point. But, but, but it does say you, you've got to You've got to take a step to try and, and, and make that um, the best and the easiest that you can. One thing, one um, thing I will say, Darren, one thing, if I can say one thing, Paul, yeah, go ahead. one thing I will say, um, Google is doing a really good job, and I think Microsoft is doing it as well, where they're actually scanning your passwords you save on your browsers to see if they're on compromised lists. So I would say look in your browser history. Your browsers will tell you that. Like Google does that, say, hey, don't use this password because it's, it's on a bad list. Um, now, my other recommendation would be don't save your passwords in your browser, but that's a, that's a conversation for <laughs> another day there, there's 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 a there's a, a convenience and a privacy risk. thing there right it's, all it's risk. convenient for How them much to tell me but yep. mm -hmm. it gets rid of the it gets rid of the uh the privacy piece darren i think this has been a wonderful conversation i do appreciate you for all those that are listening darren darren took time out of his vacation to to be with us today and, and have this discussion because he's passionate about uh cybersecurity and the education of cybersecurity and making sure um the culture changes and the, par the paradigm shift changes. So Darren, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you today. And thank you for being with us. Thank you, Paul. It's been my pleasure. And like I said, if anybody wants access to the Get Cyber Smart program, anybody on this thing wants it for free, I'll tell you how to get access to it. Just email me. Great. Good deal. Well, we've got our contact information up there. Uh, Amanda, I think it is time for me to turn it over to you. Uh, and we appreciate the opportunity to be with you all today. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for this episode 48 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I want to thank Warren Averett and Paul Perry again for allowing me to participate in their healthcare symposium. As always, if you have questions or thoughts on the com on the podcast or th questions or thoughts on my other podcast, Get Cyber Smart, email me darren at thecyberguy.com or darren at cybersmart.com. Either one will work. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. As you go through your week, know that knowledge is protection. And if you understand the threats that are targeting you, you can assess your risk and proceed wisely. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend. We'll talk to you next week.